Hey, bitch, and welcome to the show. Today, we are going to jump straight into our recipe. Remember that the dishes that we talk about on the show pair best with the side of crime. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all having a great Sunday. I hate Sundays because that means that Monday is right around the corner. And who likes Mondays, honestly? Anyways, like I said, I hope you're having a good day. If you're not having a good day at the fault of somebody else, please DM me their name and I will ruin their life. Um, If you hear my dog snoring in the background, please forgive me. I've never known peace as long as I've lived in this house. And that's one of the reasons why. Um, today, I don't know if y'all know this, but I am such a huge fan of dips. I love dips with chips, with breads, with crackers. I love dip. And today, we're going to make a copycat white spinach queso from Chili's. Now, usually, Chili's is, what the fuck? So, in a cast iron skillet, get your canola oil on medium high heat you're gonna add your spinach and cook it until it's wilted which it doesn't take much spinach literally wilts if you look at it and then remove it from the pan then you're gonna add your little butter to the pan stir in your flour basically like you're making a roux but whenever you make like cheese dips or whatever this way they come out so good in my opinion so stir and cook for 20 seconds before you add in your milk slowly slowly add in your milk you don't want to add it in all at once um you're going to add in your garlic powder and whisk that all together really well before you add in your cheese make sure that seasoning is nice and like even so stir your mixture for one to two minutes until it's thick and bubbly and then add your spinach and stir broil it in your oven for one to two minutes or until it's golden brown on top and then you can top with salsa queso guacamole in my opinion like i'm pretty sure i said this before i fucking love cheese so i would add the queso on top and i would broil it for more than one to two minutes because if you want to get like a crispy cheese top part of it like if you want the top to be brown because usually when the cheese is baked like that and it gets kind of crusty it's so good and then you just add your queso on top and bruh i promise you it's going to be bomb you can eat it with some tortilla chips of your choosing you can get a baguette cut it up and toast the little pieces of the baguette it makes like a great um little cracker type thing a nice little toasted bread to eat dips with oh my god so good and i promise i'm going to start talking about recipes other than dips but i love dip and i love cheese and i know there's other people out there who also love the same so yeah so the case we're going to talk about today it's uh, scary um But I mean, just being existing in the world as a woman is scary in itself, which I guess is what makes this all the more scary. So today is the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Now, the Fort Worth Missing Trio is an unsolved missing persons case from December of 1974. So the trio were Mary Rachel Trillica. I don't want to say it wrong, but it's spelled strange T R. 
L-I-C-A, Trilica, I guess. Lisa Renee Wilson and Julie Ann Mosley. They all went missing while they were Christmas shopping at Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth, Worth, Texas. The girls were driving a 1972 Oldsmobile 98. The car was left behind in the parking lot and the girls were never seen again after this day. Now, the oldest of the girls, Mary Trilica, she was 17 at the time. The oldest of the girls was Mary Trilica. She was 17 at the time, um, but she often went by her middle name, Rachel. So that's how she's going to be referred to as Rachel. Rachel was a married high school student that went to Southwest High School in Fort Worth, Texas. Rachel had been married to her husband, Tommy, for six months, and she wore a wedding ring. Lisa Wilson was 14 at the time of her disappearance. She went by her middle name as well, and her middle name is Renee, and that is what she will be referred to as. At the time of her disappearance, Renee was wearing a blue-purple hip-hugger pants, a white pullover that says Sweet Honesty, red and white Oxford shoes, and a promise ring with one clear stone in it. And the youngest of the group, which I'm sure you're wondering why is a nine-year-old hanging out with these older girls, but I'll get into that later. The youngest was Julie Ann Mosley. She was nine, and when she disappeared, she was wearing a red shirt with dark pants and red tennis shoes. When the girls went shopping, Julie asked at the last minute to go with them because she didn't want to spend her day alone. The other girls told her that she would have to get permission to go from her mom, so Julie went inside and called her mom, Rayanne who recalls the phone call with her daughter. She initially told Julie that she couldn't go because she didn't have any money and she just needed to stay home. Rihanna also didn't really know Rachel, but she knew Renee and Renee's mother. However, Julie kept whining about how she would have no one to play with all day. So finally, Rihanna told Julie that she could go, but she needed to be home by six. Terry Mosley, who is Julie's brother, was 15 at the time. Their dad was out of the picture, so their mom was having to work, and um, he said that back then they were able to stay home alone without a parent, but that's not something that he would recommend now. Anyways, the older girls wanted to be home by four regardless, even though Julie's mother had given her a, um, what is it called? A curfew of six, because Renee had a Christmas party that she wanted to attend with her new boyfriend, who so happened to be Julie's brother, Terry. Um, he is also the one that gave her the promise ring. The girls went to a surplus store in Fort Worth where Renee had some layaway items. After that, they went to Seminary South Shopping Center, which is where they disappeared from. Several people reported seeing the girls in the mall that day. When the girls didn't come home, the families became concerned and went to Seminary South to start searching for them. They got to the shopping center at 6 p.m. and saw the girl's car in the Sears upper level parking lot. There was evidence that the girls had gone back to the car since the gifts that they had bought were in the car. Families, The family spent the night at the mall waiting for the girls to return. You know, they're searching, they're waiting there, hoping they're going to show back up, and they just didn't. Uh, when the girls never showed up, the police were immediately contacted. The youth division of the Fort Worth Police Department took over the case. Of course, it was assumed that the girls ran away because there was really no evidence of foul play. There's no blood. There's no, um, the gifts are still in the car, so it's not a robbery. So they just assumed that they ran away. The next day, Tommy Trelica received a letter from, supposedly from Rachel, 
um, saying, I know I'm going to catch it, but we had to get away. We were going to Houston, see you in about a week. The car is in Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. Now, they brought a handwriting expert in, and they said that it's most likely not from Rachel. The address was written in pencil. The letter itself was written in ink on a piece of paper that was wider than the envelope that it was in. And it was addressed to Thomas A. Trillica rather than Tommy, which is what Rachel called him. So that is something else that's suspicious. It said Rachel in the corner of the envelope, but upon initial investigation, it appeared as if her name was misspelled. So the L on her name was written as a lowercase e, but then somebody went over it again to make it look less like an L to go back and try to correct that mistake. The postmark had no city, only what appeared to be a blurred zip code that looked like 76083. The three looked either backwards or like a partial eight. So the zip code could have been Eliasville or Weatherford. Handwriting experts over the years have yielded inconclusive results about the writing that they found on the letter. I never knew making a podcast could be so easy until one of my friends told me about Anchor. So if you don't know what Anchor is, let me just break it down for you. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You don't need any fancy programs. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more and save you a whole lot of time. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The families didn't think that the letter came from Rachel anyway, nor did they think that the girls ran away. Rianne said that she knew her daughter and that she was not a runaway. She was nine years old. Renee's mother said that she could have told the police that night that the girls did not run away. She knew how badly Renee wanted to go to that Christmas party and that no nine-year-old would run away two days before Christmas. Rachel's mother believes that the girls were abducted which I'm sure a lot of people think that. She knows that a lot of people believe that the girls left with someone they know, but she knows that they were taken against their will. The family continued to search for the girls, distributing missing persons flyers whenever they could, and contacting news stations throughout the state. Tips started to come in and witnesses started to come forward with their own stories about the girls. In 1975, someone who claimed to be a friend of Rachel said that he saw the three girls in the record department of a store inside the mall just shortly before they disappeared. Apparently, he saw them and briefly spoke with Rachel. The man claimed that he saw another person with the girls, but there's no, um, they didn't give me a description or say whether it was a man or a woman, just that there was another person with the girls. Some clothes were found in Justin, but it was determined that they did not belong to the girls. Tired of dealing with the local police, I guess they were seeming too incompetent or trying to make it too much, trying to make it fit their narrative of the girls running away. The families hired a private investigator named John Swain in August of 1975. Swain discovered that a 28-year-old man who worked for a store that Rachel had applied to was making multiple obscene calls in the area. The man was using his position to get information about young girls who either applied or were listed as references. Six different girls who applied were receiving obscene phone calls. 
The same man also lived in the same neighborhood as Rachel's parents. Despite these things, the suspect was never investigated further. In 1975, Swain went to Port Lavaca with 100 volunteers to look under bridges after they received a tip saying that the girls were killed and dumped there. No evidence of the girls was found, however. Three skeletons were found in a field by an oil drilling crew, which is such a strange coincidence for them to be looking for three girls and three skeletons happen to be found. Upon x-rays and dental records, though, the bodies were not identified as the girls. The bones belonged to a boy between the ages of 15 and 17, and the two others were girls, neither of which were any of the three missing girls. In March of 1976, a psychic called the families and told them that the girls could be found near an oil well. For whatever reason, the searchers focused on one small county and nothing ever came from it which I am not even sure if it was the county that they went missing from. Um, Swain died in 1979 of an overdose, which was ruled to be a suicide. He had made it known that upon his death, all his files regarding the case be destroyed. In spring of 1981, police were called to a location in Brazoria County where human remains had been found in a swampy area. After investigating for a month, it was determined that the remains did not belong to any of the girls. A homicide detective was assigned to the case after it was reopened in 2001. The detective was Tom Bocher. He believes that the girls left with someone they trusted, which is what the parents suspected as well. Um, You know, it's just very unlikely that these girls would leave with a stranger in broad daylight. Witnesses saw them with one person, but he believes that there was more than one person involved. So decades after the girls disappeared, there's still no trace of them and no clues as to what might have happened to them. There was a store clerk at one point who came forward and said that she saw three girls being forced into a yellow pickup truck with lights on top of it. But that witness was never found by the police and her story was never confirmed. In 1981, a man said that he saw a man forcing a girl into a van and that the man told him it was a family matter and to mind his own business. And I don't know if it was out of fear that he did mind his own business and didn't like call the cops or anything like that, but that's very sus. Lastly, a former Fort Worth policeman and security guard at the mall the girls went missing from saw the girls with a security guard the night they went missing. Terry Mosley told Dateline that he was home from school the day it happened. He left his younger sisters, who were 9 and 11, home and went to visit his girlfriend, Renee Wilson, which is one of the girls that went missing. Terry and Renee grew up together because her grandmother lived across the street from Terry. Eventually, they grew into more than just friends, and he says that he went over early to Renee's house and gave her the promise ring that she was wearing whenever she disappeared. Before Terry left Renee's house that morning, she told him that she wanted to go pick up some jeans that she had on layaway. She had wanted Terry to go with her, but he backed out at the last minute. Um, He ended up having a friend who had surgery who he promised he'd go visit, and he didn't want to go back on saying that. So I'm sure he feels an immense amount of guilt that he could have been there to protect them, help them, see something, say something. But he ended up not going. 
Renee told Terry that she was going to the store with Rachel, and that's when his sister, Julie, latched on to the idea of going as well. Um, for some reason, her mother gave in and let her go when she never did before. When the girls never came home, Terry ended up staying behind with his other sister while members of the neighborhood went and looked for the girls. Terry says that the letter threw him off. The misspelling of Rachel's name, despite the letter supposedly being from her, was a huge red flag, and he also believes that the letter points to someone that knew the girls. For the first year, unfortunately, the girls were labeled as runaways. Terry does not believe that the girls are runaways, based on the fact that Renee wanted him to go to the mall, too. He also said that Rachel was driving a nice car, and he doesn't think that, he that she would have abandoned it in the parking lot. Rachel's brother, Rusty, is trying to move the family forward from the same spot they were in four decades ago. He's trying to find some answers, trying to find some evidence, or trying to find someone who's seen something. He has been working on this case since he was practically old enough to do so. He is the admin for Fort Worth Missing Trio Facebook page, which has over 13,000 members. Uh, Rusty has also taken a search offline. He organized a dive team to search Benbrook Lake which is a lake near where the girls went missing. Um, Rusty was led to Benbrook by learning about a car that went missing around the same time the girls did. If someone was trying to get rid of a car, Benbrook was the closest logical place or body of water to dispose of it. They ended up finding three cars at the bottom of the lake. Two of them were determined to not be tied to the case, but the third one is a car of interest. I don't think they released any details as to why they think that. Um, most of the families of the girls have passed away, unfortunately. Rachel's mother, Fran, who's now 80, put three angels on her lawn every year to symbolize the three girls. But Fort Worth was never the same after they went missing. Terry still struggles with the immense pain of losing his girlfriend and his little sister. He did say he tries not to let it ruin Christmas, but he always hopes that the holidays pass quickly, which is just so sad. That is the case of the Fort Worth Missing Trio. I know this is a very old case, unsolved, cold, but if you know anything, um, Fort Worth Missing Trio on Facebook, 13,000 people, I'm sure it's more than that now. Um, please reach out to them. Uh, it can be very upsetting to not know what happened to your family member. Um, but these people are dedicating a lot of time and energy, energy to figure out what happens to their family. So if you by any chance know anything, please reach out to them. And that is our case for the week. Thanks for listening.